0: You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. program, I have the distinct pleasure of sharing a wonderful conversation that I had with Leah Song, one half of the world folk group Rising Appalachia. Over the last decade, Rising Appalachia has reimagined a huge body of traditional songs to a massive audience over the seven records they've released since forging their musical path. We talked about how she and her sister Chloe grew up, how they will continue unpacking the musicology lessons that they've received from their fiddling folklorist mother, how traditional music fits into their landscape of sounds the importance of preservation and the wild stories of how they came to be. Good afternoon, Leah. How are you doing today?
1: So lovely. Getting a little bit of Georgia Spring. Thankful for that. Yeah.
0: I can hear your bird songs, and it sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, this is my podcast. Um,
0: <laughs> <to the name. laughs>
1: i always try and do my interviews walking and i think with all these fancy headphone speakers you can the birds cut through more than anything
0: (laughs) well i'm glad that nothing else is cutting through because it just makes for a perfect environment so what was your childhood like and does music run in your family
1: yeah so such an important question um I'm I'm actually in my family home for the this this week um, down in Georgia, and we grew up in a really really interesting and kind of peculiar um, environment. Really, I think as I've gotten older, I've realized how special it was. Uh, but we grew up in a small family home in the middle of downtown Atlanta, Georgia, uh, but also kind of tucked in an area where there was a a community land trust and a piece of preserved forest and a community garden and a drum circle and a sauna and sweat lodge. So we had a very unusual urban neighborhood. Um, And then our, our, both of our parents are enormous, enormous musicians. Um, And my mother in particular got involved in studying Appalachian folk traditions first in the Georgia traditions and then into Alabama and West Virginia and North Carolina, Mississippi. She's, a, she's sort of like a, um, uh, she wouldn't call herself a musicologist, but she really is a fiddle tune collector. And, uh, so we based her work was here in the city and then we spent all of our weekends, um, literally chasing fiddle tunes from the time I was probably about four years old to, to this day. She sits and plays about eight hours a day, um, and she is just an extraordinary collector of the old traditional Appalachian mountain music, and and that has branched also into some of the blues and jazz traditions, and then deep into the kind of Celtic-Irish uh, song and, and fiddle tune world, so we just kind of straddled a lot of worlds.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is your ancestry from the British Isles? Is that where she kind of, did the traditions get passed down to her from previous generations or does she pick it up herself?
1: No, you know, we do have an interesting story in that realm. Um, we are primarily Scottish and Irish on both sides of our family, but my my mother got really into, I mean, we are in podcast form. It's a bit of a story. Are you ready for the Cliff Notes <laughs> I'm <ready>. version? Or, <laughs> I'm ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she got really involved in fiddle music, like I said, when I was little. And her first draw was to um, the Celtic traditions. And she used to take us over to Ireland all the time uh, when we were little. She was a flight attendant, so she she would route her trips uh, to the places where there was music traditions, and um, oh, my. Oh, my. and so she would t- took us to Ireland, and we have all these stories of going around with our mom and her, like, little tape recorder, cassette tape to all these pubs in Ireland and tracking all these old <laughs> Irish fiddle tunes and, like, the Shanos singing and, and the old Gaelic um, tunes and dancing as well. And then she met this fiddler... And he said, oh, you know, where are you from? And she said, well, I'm from Georgia. And she was sort of sheepish about it, you know. She was like, oh, I don't know, I'm from Georgia. And the Irish, this Irish fiddler, this old fiddle player, leaned over and said, ah, you know, the most beautiful tunes come from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and she stopped in her tracks, you know, and was like, wait a second. What's going on here? Uh, and turned back around, and that was kind of the beginning of our family's uh, like backdoor obsession with traditional Appalachian folk music, she mm-hmm. she kind of reoriented and spent the next fifteen years of her musical life and obsession studying deeply all these old traditions of Appalachian folk music. And we used to say, you know, well, where are we from? What is our ancestry? And and we would get your typical answer, which was, you know, oh, we don't really know. We're a mix. We're just. We're from these general areas. Maybe there's some English and some German, and we don't really know. And we used to ask her if there's any Irish in there, and she said, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did her DNA testing a few years ago and found out on, on both sides of her family she's primarily Irish. She's more Irish than anything else and never, wow. ever knew that and never had that uh, tradition passed to her. You know, somewhere down the line it was lost, either intentionally or uh or just by, you know, by default. And so the last many years of her life, she's really gone back into studying the Irish traditions that kind of got her started. So it's been a big whirlwind of musical deep diving, and we attribute so much of our of our learning to the kind of the journey we we followed with our mother.
0: Did you ever kind of... You know, obviously like teenagers get into phases. Did you ever get into phases where you were like so were you anti traditional at any point? Were you just like, I don't wanna play that music anymore? (laughs) (laughs)
1: We were extremely anti traditional folk music. I mean, Mm. we were embarrassed by it. We were bored. You know, we were often the only kids. We went to Clifftop, West Virginia, when there were, like, 200 people there. And it was just our folks and, like, a few other old-timers. And then we were the only kids there. You know, and Clifftop, the Clifftop camp is over 2,000 people now. And when we were going as kids, it was literally 150, 200 people. We were just bored to tears, you know. (laughs) We'd run around and catch tree frogs and just figure out what in the world we could do while all of our, like, weird parents were just literally woodshedding tunes for 20 hours a day every day you know (laughs) so we grew up like in it and also it is it is like the sonic muscle memory of our lives but but also of course it was not something we really got into we we were we were proper little urban kids we were deeply involved in the Neo soul and hip hop movements of Atlanta, Georgia. We we were mall rats, and (laughs) we didn't really want to to do all that. And and then it circled back in, like I think tradition does. And we realized Mm -hmm. we were raised in a huge bedrock of of cultural tradition that that a lot of people don't have access to in North America. You know, a whole lot of folks don't have access to old traditions and. We kind of roped back in, both my sister and I. Once we left the house, after we graduated from high school, after we kind of entered the world, we were like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, we got to get, we need to make sure we hold on to that music and the songs. We were raised in, con- our our folks had a contra dance band when we were kids. Like, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we were raised deep <laughs> in it. And, uh, and so, of course, we wanted nothing to do with it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That seems to be a running theme with almost, with so many artists that I cover through the podcast, you know, back to like the first episode of Gillian Welch where, you know, she grew up in a household where her adopted parents played all sorts of, they they gave her song books. They, you know, essentially she was playing in the Carter family when she was like in elementary school, you know. As a group performance thing, and then she went through this like gothic band phase where she was in these like punk bands and uh, had like crazy hair. And then one day she hears "Rank Stranger" from uh, the Stanley Brothers, and she's like, "Oh my god, that is the music I should be playing." And I do think it's it's such a strange thing because. tradition is so circular and it comes in these cycles and it even happens in mainstream culture with, you know, like the folk revival and the blues revival. And then like this kind of big revival that's been happening since Oh Brother Where Art Thou came out. And it is interesting how it makes it way back for, for most people that had exposure when they were children.
1: I think a lot of people who find it in their own life, in their adulthood, take it on more seriously and, and even more in a more, uh, obsessive and committed way because because you find it later on and you're like, oh, I was deprived of this, you know. And right. I think those of us that grew up with with folk traditions, you know, part of part of it is so in our muscle memory that we can be a bit more casual about it, which which has pros and cons, you know, but I often find mm-hmm. the novice players that find it later on and get into it on their own are just so committed, you know? I kind of envy that commitment. I remember the moment, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou came out, all of a sudden, as a young person in Georgia with a fiddle and banjo playing mother, I was like, (laughs) wait a second. You're telling me that this music just entered Hollywood, you know? Right. Like there was some very interesting reality check for me when that film came out, and all of a sudden, old time Appalachian folk music became cool, and old songs that I had been hearing since I was a kid were like being played in, on radio stations, you know. And yeah, that was quite a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal. There we go, pivotal moment. <laughs>
0: It was for a lot of people. It's it's strange how it, the medium is different too. You know, it's not it's not this resurgence of songs because of festivals or because uh, a, an anthology comes out of books or of old recordings or or whatever it is. And it's a movie this time, and it's the visual was so strong from the Coen Brothers, and it was such a an immersive film that um, it just became. You know, you cut, You couldn't help, if you watched a movie and you liked the movie, you couldn't help but fall in love with the music, even if you hadn't been exposed to it totally. before.
1: Yeah, I really think it showed the power of, of art forms, you know. it Really, if you can bring a tradition into a popular medium, then that tradition can live and breathe and, and grow again. And I think that was so valuable to see and was really informative to us in our early years. It was like, okay, how can we bring... These traditions that can sometimes feel irrelevant to our modern narrative back into the conversation and make them make them active and and morphing into the into the popular and modern storytelling. You know, and and that's how folk traditions can grow and live and survive. Is, is both in preservation, but also in bringing them into a contemporary context, and it was just fascinating to see that resurgence.
0: Absolutely. So you play several different instruments. Um, which one did you start with?
1: I started on the banjo and my story of learning banjo is as, as bizarre as any of the rest of them. I, um, <laughs> you know, like I said, I grew up real deep in the tradition, but it was so second nature to our family. I didn't really even think about studying them. They were just in my life. And um, Mm -hmm. when I was 18 years old, I really wanted to go to art school, and I didn't get a scholarship, and our family couldn't afford it. Um, And so I decided, you know, if I'm not going to get into the school of my choice, I'm not going to go to school yet. I'm going to take some time off. And I ended up moving down to southern Mexico and beginning a very long life of traveling and studying and living abroad as a means of, of educating myself. And um, my very first month, in a, you know, out in the world as a young woman, you know, trying to figure out who I was, people started asking me, what, where do you come from? What's your family like? What are your traditions? What, you know, what is America like? All we see is soap operas and bad Hollywood films and mm-hmm. it was on that trip that I picked up and started playing a five-string banjo and I learned actually out of the country as a as a traveler with a little portable backpack banjo trying to pick up <laughs> clawhammer, you know which sounded to me like home and I wanted some talking piece I didn't speak the language and I didn't just want to be a a tourist, you know, I wanted to have something to share about where I came from, and I started learning banjo, uh, living in in Mexico and in Central America, plunking away on the claw claw hammer style, you know, with a few recordings in my ear, and trying to hold on to something that that felt and sounded like home to me, Um, and that was the very beginning, and it was such an interesting thing to travel with an instrument. It was so informative because if you're a traveler, just on your own, you know, you, people try and sell you things or sometimes mm-hmm. they try to, you know, take advantage of you or, or just assume you want to get the next fancy touristy thing. If you have an instrument in your hands, every door opens in a different way you're invited into family meals, you're invited to to share stories, you're invited to the council of grandmothers who will sit around and you know not speak the same language but they want to hear a little piece of your culture. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: I really really picked the banjo up as a traveler to bring me an anchor back to my home and mm-hmm. my roots and and I kind of fell in love with it in that context. Kind of from nostalgia and from being homesick.
0: That is so bizarre to to learn clawhammer as far away, like <laughs> in such a, a far off destination from where it originated. It's that's just incredible.
1: But it was far <laughs> away. But it was like my tie to my to my mother. You know, my father as well. Like it, it was sort of. I it was like that. So many, I think, young people have that story where you have to go really far away from home to realize what you took for granted about your home mm-hmm. you know and it was like that classic story <laughs> to give due credit where credit is due I um I started learning it there and then I spent several years volunteering and attending the Swananoa gathering up in North Carolina I used to volunteer at the CD booths and work the CD booths in exchange for classes and I'd go for Irish week and Appalachian week and then I would sit with my mother. I sat with my mother last night and would shed fiddle and banjo tunes. You know, it went very, very deep into studies after that and mm-hmm. deep into this sort of front porch mentorship. It's been quite a, quite a long journey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, was your sister kind of on a similar wavelength in that respect, or was she already playing fiddle at that point?
1: Well, so- story she um she's younger than me and so she was at home for a few more years while I was traveling and uh and really I was sort of getting my footing on the banjo and then she and I did a little traveling and and I I sort of brought banjo in and she started playing a little bit I was teaching her just the little pieces that I knew um and she was playing a little bit of fiddle just so we could have some duets again also from traveling we started traveling together when she graduated from high school um -hmm. and then we recorded our first album after collecting a few songs and doing some ballads we were working with this amazing amazing uh two soul singing brothers from rural mississippi who uh, were we were getting in a lot into the blues we were getting into some of the Zydeco and Cajun traditions, just sort of a wellspring of soaking up traditional music got into mm-hmm. a black pot realm down there and and just trying to understand our lens as Southern artists. And we recorded our first uh, CD in a day, in an afternoon, in a friend's basement, just as like this novelty project. We were like, sure. oh, let's just record, let's record like our favorite twelve songs, a few old-timey ones, a couple gospel tunes, um, you know, a little bit of Balkan singing. We had started picking up. Just throw it all onto an album as like a, as a as a novelty art project, <laughs> <laughs> and just to document for our folks, you know, how appreciative we are of them mm-hmm. and and their influences, and, and just kind of like as a nod to our family. And that's what we thought we were doing. We thought we were just making a fun kind of holiday art project out of it. And um, that we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know that would launch us into a many, many year, multi-album, deep, deep, deep obsession with the role of the artist and the realms of traditional folklore and the many different myriads of ways of holding traditions and songwriting and it just it just opened it opened up tenfold. We still feel like we're kind of barely holding on to the reins of what that sort of small, humble and unintentional uh, craft project has brought into <laughs> our lives. <laughs> you know? We're still grappling with, like, what exactly was that Pandora's box?
0: <laughs> I know. It's, it all, all takes a little bit, you know, a little itch, and then you start scratching and you can't stop at that point. Um,
2: <laughs> totally. Totally.
0: <laughs> so could you introduce a song that we're going to play that uh, kind of falls in line with that early inspiration?
1: Yeah. You know, actually, what I think I'd like to do is um, one of the earlier songs that we... We picked up and my dear friend Kaylin Campbell taught me this. He's an amazing fiddle player out of, out of Southern Appalachia in North Carolina. And, um, it's just an old, real sweet old traditional. We recorded this one years ago and has got, it's got that simple kind of old timey sound. So we'll do fall on my knees.
0: So the early days after this album, what kind of, what what steps followed into we should maybe start doing some shows, we should maybe start doing another album, like how did that start formulating into an idea that you could have a mission, I guess?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it was a slow and almost reluctant, um, mm-hmm project in a way. I mean, we didn't, neither one of us wanted to be touring full-time. We didn't want to be doing music full-time. Um, you know, we weren't really interested in the hustle that came with trying to self-promote. Um, but mm-hmm. we were invited after that first uh, recording. We were invited, we met and and because our family is so deeply involved in the music, folk music community in Georgia, you know, we were at a at an, a jam session pickin' party and we ended up singing some songs and the professor of Irish studies from Emory University was there. Um, really, really special storyteller and Celtic scholar and just kind of a godfather to the to the Irish and Scottish traditions. And he and he said, Girls, I'd like you to be represent the the voice of sort of the young Southern traditions in our upcoming show, which was called the Atlanta Celtic Christmas, which is sort of like mm. a fantastic kind of Southern version of river dance. <laughs> and, uh, it was at the Schwartz Center in Atlanta. It was real fancy thousand person audience. And they brought in Allison Brown and, and uh, several Quebecois fiddle players. And, and uh, each year they bring in Cormac Barra from, from Ireland who does a lot of harp playing, and they they kind of brought in musicians that touched in the Celtic traditions, the Irish and Scottish and and Quebecois traditions, and then the bluegrass traditions, and they didn't really have anybody holding um, the Appalachian traditions. And, you know, we were really beginning. We were beginning. It was kind of the first time we had been on a microphone and we had a thousand-person audience in front of us, you know. (laughs) And we were designated with the task of trying to represent a young voice of Appalachian traditions which you know although we were very deeply raised in Appalachian folk traditions uh, we were by no means scholars at all Um, Mm -hmm. and we we did that show we did a weekend of those shows and we met so many incredible musicians and and you know were re-inspired to hold the, the traditions of our own lineage and Lo and behold we made probably 250 copies of our little CD self-titled Leah and Chloe that mm-hmm. and we sold every one of them at that <laughs> at that <laughs> gathering and we got invited to meet record producers in Nashville and you know it, it just sort of exploded in our faces and we were like wow we didn't we don't even know what we're doing. (laughs) We could hardly even get our song out. We were so nervous. Um, But that was like a pretty accelerated drop kick into, um, you know, taking it more seriously. And, and we, we just, we did go to Nashville and we met with a couple of different record labels and we thought about it and we decided we didn't want to take that route. We didn't, Want to be handed a career on a silver platter we didn't really want to be um, pigeonholed into a particular genre or into a particular aesthetic even you know it felt really important to us because of our background because of the wide girth of musical influences and both urban and rural southern foothold that we had we really we really didn't Take that route. We didn't. We didn't take a label. We still haven't taken a label. We uh, we wanted to have some creative liberty, and we wanted to go really slowly. And we spent the next several years just touring out of an old biodiesel school bus and playing in <laughs> people's farmhouses and playing in exchange for you know meals and backpacking across Europe with our fiddle banjo duet and traveling by train and just like trying to understand this realm uh before we before we defined it i think and uh so it's like i said at the top of this it's something that we're still we're still sort of following the muses and following the invitations more than we're actually shaping and defining the project ourselves
0: i think that's a fine way to be too because you know, obviously we can't anticipate anything that's coming our way <clears throat> and being open to whatever comes is, is logically better than trying to control it before it even happens. And a lot of times with contracts and with, um, limitations and stipulations and all that stuff, you end up realizing that you're fitting the mold of somebody else's dream and not necessarily yours. And, uh, you know, your dream kind of becomes as it, as it wants to, as, as you evolve and, uh, it can, it continues to evolve with you. And I think that's wise that you all took the path that you did. And clearly it's also lent itself to finding more about yourselves and, uh, and, and as well as the music, obviously in the traditions, but, um, finding how, who you are and all that, um, I'm sure is also a constant evolution.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a little bit more of a complicated way of moving, but it keeps you honest.
0: Mm-hmm. So it seems like every album that you guys have released um, has featured a diverse collection of different cultural traditional songs that you've adapted into your own style. And some examples that come to mind are kind of halftime rhythmic breakdown underneath the rolling banjo and fiddle of Cuckoo Bird, doing Fly Away in a minor key, uh, taking Bright Morning Stars stars into Botawak. Is that how you say that?
1: Bot- Botowak, yep.
0: Botawak, that the ind- indigenous Costa Rican song, and all the way back to the sparse vocals and African drums that you did on Honey Bay Blues from the first record. And it seems like there is a bridge that you're connecting between Appalachia, British, the British Isles, and these traditionals with kind of this bottomless well of world music and I'm curious of what the process, you know, obviously you've, you said that you traveled a lot and you kind of backpacked and immerse yourselves in these cultures, but were were there any intentional kind of understudies or mentorships that you guys partook in when you were in these areas?
1: Yeah. Great question and good research. It's really nice to hear it talked about in that way. Um, You know, I think a lot of, people lean into kind of fusion style music and it can feel a bit cookie cutter just kind of piecemeal mm-hmm. and we really wanted and have tried to take on some of these traditional songs in an interpretation that that feels really true to our style and our upbringing and you know it's it's very true that we were raised very deep in the traditional Appalachian realms and almost equally deep in the underground contemporary hip-hop movements. We were
2: mm-hmm. born
1: and raised in Atlanta. We were inner-city public school kids. And our community, our peers and our young friends and our and our community was very involved in the spoken word and the arts and music scene of underground Atlanta. And so those two realms... Are not historically friends with each other, and they were very odd for us as young people to straddle. We often said we had identity crises, you know we would be like <laughs> at the nightclub during the week and then like catching bullfrogs in like rural Appalachia on the weekends <laughs> and trying to figure out how those two cooperated and then subsequently we also uh, really were raised with a global understanding our mother and father met abroad. We we spent a lot of time traveling. And so it has always felt very natural to, to kind of blend a lot of real deep bass and low end into some of these old traditional Appalachian tunes, to study front porch folk music anywhere we've gone, and mm-hmm. to take that really seriously. So we we kind of first and foremost before even being musicians consider ourselves song collectors and so we've we've sat on the front porch of a lot of different people and said you know tell us your songs we'll sing you one of our songs if you sing us one of your songs and we've studied in bulgaria with a lot of the traditional folk singing of the bulgarian a cappella singing we we spent like i said earlier a lot of time in in New Orleans, and in rural Louisiana, leaning into some of the Cajun uh, and Zydeco traditions. Our primary mentor and our musical godmother and godfather here in Georgia, are are enormous blues singers, our godfather is one of the greatest blues harmonica players I've ever heard, Mm -hmm. Uh, just Mm -hmm. a legend. And we have spent some time wrapping our heads around the Celtic-Irish Singing traditions, Gaelic is such a hard language. It's the hardest language <laughs> we've ever tried to wrap our heads, heads around. So, you know, being being travelers uh, pretty young on and all the way through our lives, I think what we have felt is our job and our passion and our purpose has been to learn some of our own traditions and also to understand how valuable traditional music is at large and to sort of be tradition keepers as best we can. So to Mm -hmm. kind of gather a basket of of traditional music and the knowledge of it and the permission to bring it into our songs and the permission to collaborate. You know, Botowalk is a First Nations Costa Rican song and we did a, a musical exchange in Costa Rica and learned the music and it is was already without any change at all in the same melody as Bright Morning Stars, which is a traditional mm-hmm. Appalachian and folk and gospel song. And that wasn't something that we modified. That was the melody of the song. And <clears throat> when you start digging into traditional music, you find so many overlaps and it's really a wellspring, it's, it's so inspiring and it's so bottomless. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's just been, that's just, it's driven us in, you know, in the best way to just keep being collectors and, and to do good due diligence to, to bring this music out into the world and find places where it, where it overlaps uh, really quite naturally while also, while also giving homage to its, to its old and longstanding traditional components as well so it's 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 driven us you know it's it's been such uh, inspiration for how we study mhm
0: yeah i think that's something that's not as commonly known in all this overlap that's going on you know the songs from the british isles were originally inspired by Immigrants that came from the Middle East, so you have Middle East folk music that kind of inspired the early British ballads that we know of from the 1600s. And then, you know, not understanding where the banjo comes from, I've always had this kind of running joke of like, you can't be a racist banjo player, and like, not realizing how things cross over. And and it's it's really the way that you all have done it is is seamless. But it it paying closer attention, you can tell that you've really kind of you haven't half asked anything you've gone into these these realms and kind of put yourself in there and then came back out and said which pieces of the of these realms did it did fit with me and kind of brought it into your own style and it's something i've really admired about um each of your uh albums and especially the the evolution of the music in general um from the first album on but also how it's kind of kept some of the similar elements from the first record that I heard so
1: yeah I love that you really you have to once you start digging there's not really like an original voice you know our origins (laughs) are extremely extremely multifaceted and I think it's good to know where you come from and it's really valuable to study any of the roots that you can find access to but then as soon as you start studying it just goes further and further back and You realize what a long-standing melting pot human culture is.
0: Absolutely. I can probably do this podcast until the end of my life and not cover half of the material that is out there, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So in keeping with that sort of theme, how has the collaboration with your sister kind of evolved from those early days up to today? Obviously, you both have grown together and you've grown independently as well. How has your ability to connect with each other evolved through traditional songs and how obviously it ties into your family and your roots and like, but how, how did, like, was it hard going at first and then, or was it easy from the start?
1: You know, we have been so lucky to have always really gotten along quite well. We're, we're almost about three and a half years apart. And so we never really had a, Competitive nature in our lives, and we always got along pretty well. But you know, I don't think that we knew we would go into a lifelong um, passion project together. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think, in the very beginning, it was really very special because we had this creative voice that brought us closer to each other and then also brought us closer to our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, it has in, in many ways remained that way. Remained really quite easeful. We tend to steer in a way that feels gracious and graceful to, you know, the momentum and the flow of the river. Uh, but we've mm-hmm. also had, we've also had plenty of moments where it has been complicated. It has been more work than we can handle. We have had strain on our Relationship and our ability to be leaders together uh, as women, as two women, as siblings fronting a project in an industry where even just our voices and our style of leadership is really quite unusual. Um, so, but I, I, I really feel like our dynamic has been such a stabilizing piece of our project. And we tour now with a six piece and we're very, Mm -hmm. very kind of in love with the whole band. Um, But, but having two people at the helm takes away a lot of the potential for it to be ego driven or for it to become, uh, you know, anybody's on a pedestal. And oftentimes when one of us is really tired and burnt out or out of inspiration or, or frustrated. The other one can pick up the reins. And the amount of times over the many years that we've done this, that we've been able to float our project by, by leaning into each other in that way, I think has given us a longevity that I, I just don't think we could have possibly had if it was just one or the other of us, you know? And that's something mm-hmm. I... Thank I'm so thankful for on a regular basis just to have a, a triangulation of leadership and instead of a, a single figurehead and also to have that sort of feminine uh, fluidity and and ease we really put all of those things uh, in the mm-hmm. forefront of how we do things and it has kept us supple.
0: I like that. So this podcast. One of its missions, I guess the, maybe the biggest mission it has, is to expose people to the old music that has shaped our culture, um, who otherwise may not be exposed to it, and continue the conversation forward for future generations of where this music comes from. And, um, so if you had to pick a musician as a gateway to the music of the past, and this could be blues, it could be Appalachian music, or folk music, whatever, um, who would it be and why?
1: If I like a single musician that was a gateway to my influence and my inspiration, or like for other people to kind of get in?
0: Could be to your influence. It could be to for other people to get it. Could be either one of those.
1: Wow, that is a really hard question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for instance, for me personally, um, finding Mississippi John Hurt was the first introduction into what the blues was you know you have this this standard Chicago blues sound that you hear what you think of or the Delta blues whichever you think of when it comes to mind when you hear the the word the blues but what he did was so palatable that it was like and it, knowing that it was at the turn of the century where his recordings originally came from that it was enough to be like wow I wonder what other musicians sounded like during that time and then kind of the overarching theme of Piedmont blues of folk blues of country blues that sort of thing
1: Wow. So, you know, there were like a few kind of quote unquote gateway drugs for me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, you know, I remember, and these are, this isn't exactly the answer that you're going for, but it's like, what is, (laughs) what's coming? I remember I listened to a lot of Ani DeFranco, you know, and Mm -hmm. I also listened to a lot of Outkast. They were both really, really big parts of my, life and identity and I remember when Anita Franco had a uh, she had a banjo guitar you know that she put into one of her albums and Mm -hmm. I remember hearing the banjo again in like a contemporary realm and being like wait a second what is this instrument that I thought was only associated to this one particular style of music and you know similar Mm -hmm. with a with an old outcast hip hop song when they brought in a blues harmonica. So, mm-hmm. you know, those openings, it's a little different than what you're asking, but those like places where these old traditional sounds have come into contemporary uh songwriters vernacular are places where then I think the door opens and and you sort of get a really deep dive in. Um in the fiddle realms, you know, we were really, really deeply influenced by the incredible work of Bruce Molsky. Our, our mother mm-hmm. used to do house concerts in our living room, and Bruce, Bruce Molsky would come and play house shows in our living room in like the early 90s. And oh, wow. we didn't really know what that was all about uh, <laughs> uh, at the time, you know. But but following and digging into his music and his studies of traditional fiddle has been uh, a wellspring Kevin Burke, Martin Hayes, the incredible, incredible Irish traditions of Martin Hayes was probably what tipped us off into, you know, some of the deepest studies of old Irish fiddle tunes. So there have been a lot of key players uh in our in our studies. But again, our perspective is really unusual because so much of it is familiar to us without knowing why, because of you know, hundreds of thousands of hours living mm-hmm. in a living room full of this music. Right. And um, and so we're, we'll spend the whole rest of our lives backtracking and being like, oh, wow, our mom was actually fiddling that tune in this Mississippi style. And we we always <laughs> thought it was, you know, we always thought it was a, this, this North Carolina style. And actually she added like a Cajun, like, you know, we're going to spend our whole lives backtracking <laughs> all of the sounds <laughs> that are like embedded in our muscles. We don't have the musicology language yet still
0: to interpret. Yeah, And I think that answer actually works really well because, you know, Annie DeFranco leads to Pete Seeger and Pete Seeger leads to, uh, an enormous catalog of different folk songs and of traditions and of kind of group singing and, um, and then outcast leads to sampling and sampling goes back to soul music and soul music goes from gospel and you know there's like there's endless little kind of rabbit holes you can dig once you start talking yeah, about even modern is. artists that have kind of yeah it, ma- it makes a good point that if there is instrumentation or if there is an element in a modern music um, that it can kind of be a bridge for somebody else you know like it's so weird i'm I'm gonna end up talking about this I'm interviewing David holt later this week and I'm gonna end up talking about this with him too but this whole sea shanties kind of uh uprooting uprising that's happening right right now (laughs) i know it's incredible like from one scottish kid that sings the the wellerman who's it's an old new zealand song from like the 1800s and like now all of a sudden tiktok and freaking everybody there i mean like say you know streams of of sea shanty like all these people are recording sea shanty albums i'm like this is so bizarre, like the most bizarre thing that could happen among youth it's mainstream bizarre. culture. You and know, it just—it is just, just one thing
1: amazing to watch.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I—it makes sense when you think about melodies and you think about um, the catchiness of melodies and and how a cappella singing, of course, and like there's there there is these kind of like primal. Elements, I guess, or something that comes out of singing certain melodies, where it feels familiar, even though it, you've never heard a sea shanty before. You know, for a lot of these kids, these young right. kids, and you're just like, man, that is just yeah. so damn catchy. And I think that is a primal thing, and not necessarily a modern thing. And totally. maybe that's it. I don't know.
1: Well, we have been also our 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 job as performers has been really interesting because we consider ourselves. Folk musicians, world folk for sure, and you know a wider lens of folk. But our folk musicians, and you know our favorite festivals in the world to play are the are the Winnipeg Folk Festival and the Chicago Folk Fest and the one like the really wonderful folk music gatherings. But for whatever reason, we have also been picked up and brought into the realms of a lot of electronic music festivals and and transformational music festivals and we laugh and we kind of call ourselves the, like folkies at the electronic festivals which is <laughs> the weirdest it is the weirdest uh you know side hustle you could possibly imagine and and was definitely not by design but i think similar to what you're saying we get we get headlining bills at a lot of these festivals where there's not a lot of other string band music because I think for an audience that's listening to primarily electronic music, they're incredibly drawn to what we're doing, and they don't totally know why, and it's mm-hmm. not exactly familiar, you know, and it's not exactly even the genre of music that a lot of these young folks find themselves listening to, but they're very drawn to kind of come to the stage and come to our shows and, and sort of let their ear lean back into these old acoustic sounds and I think it's really similar. It's like a visceral body response and maybe even like a, an, a memory and a, mm-hmm. an attunement to a traditional style of music that we all have in our ancestry, no matter what side of the world you come from. You know, we've come from, from uh, cultures and communities that music and traditional music and front porch music and celebration and storytelling and grieving music was Mm -hmm. a lot of the way memory was held and so I do I think people are hungry for it if they don't even exactly know how to identify that and it's it's been kind of an awkward job for us because we're like we would actually (laughs) really love to play the folk music festivals where we can hang out with a whole bunch of other people who are geeks about all this music (laughs) with us (laughs) you know then like be the tokenized (laughs) folkies at the festival where nobody even like has instruments and but also, I feel like it's it's had a lot of it's had a lot of purpose to it because we're like, well, we do we want to see these traditions come back into a contemporary conversation and to be meaningful parts of the way communities are learning and growing and songwriting and processing and and you know holding holding onto ritual together. So it's been a really really fascinating bridging that we're we're trying to do and to circle all the way back around. That's how, that's why those, those artists came to mind, you know, the, the work of Anita Franco and outcasts who are not necessarily doing traditional music, but they <laughs> bring a little of that tradition in and it opens a lot of doors.
0: It's so true. And I think, yeah, obviously there's the vibe of, you know, seeing the, the the presence that you have on stage obviously is a big part of what draws people in and and kind of this the spiritual elements that are entwined with your music and i think that draws people in too but it is interesting too you know i i do think it it's valuable in in any sense when a youth when the when the greater youth can kind of learn even though yeah like you said they may not understand that they're actually listening to a tradition they might think that you wrote the cuckoo song who knows but, oh,
1: really? <laughs> you know, getting
0: but hearing that and then, you know, 10 years later when they read about it or somebody tells them like, oh, yeah, that's an old traditional song from England, you know, or whatever. And then it clicks with them. And I think that's kind of the greater thing is that you end up becoming a stepping stone, not necessarily the source yeah. or the, you know, yeah. but for somebody's journey, they can, you know, string things back on them on their memory and be like, oh, that was when I heard that song from this group and I, th- I totally thought it was something else. And that's happened many times for me yeah, over and over. Totally. Um, and, you know, people like Billy strings who are out there. Um, and it's a similar thing with him where there is this kind of like the jam band uh, audience and the, and the hippie kind of redneck audience and like the, it, there's a huge mishmash of people that can, but he's playing a lot of traditional songs and, and kind of, rejuvenating the traditional bluegrass spirit but also experimenting on that on a whole different level than most people ever have. And yeah, it is there's a benefit of having a hybrid and I think any time that the youth can kind of be strung along and and be exposed to it, hopefully later on in life they'll uncover that it's tradition and then they can keep talking about it.
1: Yes, this is totally our secret agenda. We're like how can we make this? I remember when we told our mom we were like we put cuckoo on our album and she was like, no, was it cuckoo? no, it wasn't cuckoo. Actually. sorry. That was our mother's rendition. It was cripple Creek, which we did a mm-hmm. few albums back. And we said, Oh, we, we did a version of cripple Creek. And our mom who is literally just like an Appalachian fiddle scholar was like, really? You did cripple Creek. Like she was <laughs> slightly mortified, you know, and we were like, well, give it a listen, you know, and we did exactly what you said. We kind of half timed it and, put in, mm-hmm. like, down-tempo undertones and, like, added this whole other kind of leaning, lilting part and, and and there is something about trying to massage some of this old music and figure out a way that it might reach newer ears and, you know, when we get mother's approval, we're like, okay, yes, she's, <laughs> she's a hard nut to crack and she was like, alright, alright, girls, I think your rendition gave it some justice. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a it's like a good uh challenge to find some of the ways to and and you know what we hear and the versions we hear are not the only versions these are like these songs have been right. through hundreds if not thousands of iterations and and mm-hmm. all the lyrics swap all over the place and you know I I do really deeply believe that there's value in holding tradition and there's also value in 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 sculpting tradition, you know, making sure.
0: it, it wouldn't be. speak to the now. Right. I, I suppose it wouldn't be any fun if it was the exact same for 400 years, you know. I think obviously yeah. it would be like – it would be miraculous, but it would also be like, right. well, you know, <laughs> it could – it probably had other – like you were saying, iterations and and things that exposed it to different elements and different cultures and environments. So of course it would naturally change. But I think what I appreciated too about Cripple Creek was uh, a live version that I heard where you, you played it as you recorded on the album and then you, and you said, here, now here's a traditional version. And then kind of the the guitar player (laughs) rips into the the traditional melody in, in the same, in the traditional time. And it's, I think for that, especially if anybody's watching or listening to that and they, that would click for them. That would be like, okay, that this okay. is a traditional song. They didn't write this, which is great too. I think right. paying homage, but also like giving credit to, um, is huge and important.
1: Right. Yeah. We had a lot of fun with that. We were like, let's, let's like give it some honesty here. <laughs> the little clangy <laughs> version of it out there. So folks know like where we're working
0: from. <laughs> so, um, will you introduce another, uh, tune that inspired, uh, it could be a genre, it could be a specific song, artist, um, region, even, if you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to share.
1: No, it's so hard to jump into what I was thinking about doing after our conversations of the rowdiness <laughs> of Cripple Creek. Um, what I was thinking about doing, um, I'm going to give you a choice, how about that? Sounds thinking good. about doing this old Irish ballad. Oh, there's a little bomb for us. This old Irish ballad uh, called "Stretched Out on Your Grave," which I do a rendition of with a bow run. Um Or we could jump into another Appalachian one, do "Red Rocking Chair," which uh, has mm. got a little bit more of that claw hammer banjo style. So, how about I leave that in your curative hands? Which direction <laughs> you'd like to go?
0: Well, I do. I'm a sucker for a good run, So. If we could go that direction, and obviously we we owe so much to the British Isles and to Ireland, so we might as well go and give them some homage.
1: Well said, well said. All right, so uh, this is a this is an old song called "Stretch Out on Your Grave," and the story that I know about it is that it's a it's um, a piece of 14th century poetry, uh, anonymous poetry, uh, written in Irish Gaelic, and it was translated uh, and put to melody many, many years later made quite famous by Sinead O'Connor uh, Kate Ruthby does a beautiful version and uh, I, this is my version called Stretched Out on Your Grave
2: I am stretched out on your grave and I'll lie here forever With your hand in mine I'd be sure they would not sever my apple tree, my brightness It's time we were together for I smell of the earth and I'm
0: So, who is an artist today that you're aware of um that's keeping true to some American roots form um that many maybe people haven't heard of or is not as well known as you would like them to be um and it could be a specific style of blues, could be country, folk, bluegrass, uh Appalachian.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I <laughs> I am pretty notorious for living under a rock. <laughs> And I, I really actually enjoy pretty limited uh, exposure to anything. In our van, we always joke. We listen to, like, trad Appalachian, and then we listen to West African traditional music from Mali and Guinea and Burkina Faso, and then we listen to 90s hip-hop, and that's about all you get <laughs> in our world. Uh, but that said, you know, I've, there's a couple of fantastic – Uh, String band Projects that I have just been Deeply in love with Um, I love Jake Blount Who I know you featured Mm -hmm. here And he is doing such incredible things With the traditions And I literally listen to his albums All the time Um, There's a wonderful band Called Fretless That I Mm -hmm. spend some time just Digging very deeply into A lot of their string, string band renditions Um I'm very partial to our band members and everybody's got side projects and uh <laughs> our 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 drummer and our Ngoni player are doing a lot of deep diving into kind of restoring and bringing back some of the traditions out of Burkina Faso, which is his home base and uh, they met over there in West Africa and so they have a project called Pico and Aruna. The Aruna mm-hmm. and Pico project and they're Doing a lot of cool storytelling there. Um, uh, there's probably so 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 many more um, that I don't know about. I'm always trying to collect more music and and be a bit more in the forefront of all of the rad small front porch projects that are happening. All the song catchers. So yes. I, I'll be listening even more to the podcast and see who you dig up
0: uh you will find somebody in every episode usually yeah i cover a traditional song and then i kind of go on a timeline until somebody um recent is upholding tradition so each episode there's at least one person and then obviously the mentions of other folks um but that is a lovely answer i love that you also spread it out across the world which is a as i hoped you would i
1: mean and you know i i I would have to say, like, I am yet to tire of any of Adam Hurt's banjo albums, mm. which I think for any banjo aficionado is, like, one of the greatest interpretations of, of Clawhammer banjo I've ever heard. So, oh, mm. there's so much. There's so much. We're going to try and spend a little more time in Ireland.
0: Mm, yeah. Really? That's, um, oh, yeah, I've not heard you'll of You'll
1: have a lot of fun with that. Adam Beautiful. Hurt, uh... Uh, He's just, he's done a lot with an old gourd banjo and Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I don't know where he is in the world. And, you know, I think he's a bit, uh, you don't see him live that much, but some of his banjo albums are are really just unbelievable.
0: I can certainly send you some folks that, um, that I've found in my research. Um, is there anything that you've been up to lately that you wanted to talk about? A shameless plug. Um, any kind Game of thing that you
1: plug, want, listeners. Always. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, actually, we uh, we have a new album coming, and we're really, really excited about mm-hmm. it. Um, it sort of happened by accident, and we we haven't hardly seen each other for the year. Um, and we got together for the first time in in all of the pandemic, and we did a big live stream concert where we. Recorded a studio, uh, rented a little recording studio, and then we, uh, we filled the room with plants, and we put some video cameras in there, and we did a live stream concert, and then we, we said, well, we're all together, let's take the studio for a second day, just see what happens. And we took the studio for a second day, and we basically did a round robin of mm. uh, improv kind of tune-starting. Most of the things none of us had ever heard before. A few of them uh, we had played before; they were old tracks, or we had kind of were woodshedded. Um, not having any real expectations, and we finished that ten-hour day in the studio, and we said, "Yeah, you know, I think there was some there's something <laughs> in there." So we've been we've pulled together a nine-track of kind of instrumental really fluid, really uh, kind of long format tunes uh, that we're really, really excited to put out. It's kind of obscure. It's a different direction than we've gone in in the past. Um, and it's going to come out in May. So it's it's coming. and It's coming up. I, I think I'm very curious how it will be received. You know, it feels like an honest creative response to the year <laughs> you know mm. it's a different format than we've done and a, a little bit less focused on like your classic kind of singing format but but I think still pretty much in the rising appalachia <laughs> vernacular and vibe and um it's going it's called the, the lost mystique of being in the know
0: okay I think if anything that people have uh gotten rid of uh during these times has been expectations. So I think you'll be fine. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. We've had a lot of fun. It's given us some creativity in a place where we weren't we didn't know if we would have creativity and Yeah. It it's such a it was such a raw format and it feels very true to our process. So <laughs> That's well, coming. I can't and we we have a Patreon which we've released this year, which was a little bit awkward getting started. We don't we don't really enjoy self promotion all that much and it feels kind of obscure to to create in that way. But we try and dump a lot of of our creative material in there and half finished songs and pieces of poetry and journal articles that we love and so that's always cooking if folks want to get involved and support from there and otherwise we're just sitting pretty like the rest of us hoping that (laughs) we'll get we'll be able to get back out there again and make music in the flesh. It's going to be so exciting.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And a question that I like to enter interviews with um, is there a message that you want to send out regarding all the deep changes that are going on in the world. And this does not need to tie into music, but just a general kind of message um, that you would like to put out in the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think in all of the existential crisis and tragedy and hardship and heartbreak of this year, I, I think the the silver lining has been, that everyone has really learned how to fine-tune their inner landscape and how to stay a little mm-hmm. bit more still and stay a little bit more centered and focused and in their gardens and in their families and, and also just in their own inner landscape. And I think that that's actually going to give us the tools as a, as a culture, as a global culture, to have a lot more... Um longevity and sort of long haul mm-hmm. ability to deal with whatever is coming and i I think that's been uh that's been the gift of these times we've been just that we've had to push way past anxiety and into a patience and a stillness that I pretty much think nobody had any idea they were capable of, and as things open back up, I hope that that Part we're each able to hold on to and keep as our keeping our toolkit, you know. I think that that's going to give us a lot of a lot of strength to to survive and adapt and grow and change and witness and evolve in in this crazy world that we've been born into. So that's my that's my mantra on on the days that I. Can hone it in for
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And I'm going to meditate on that mantra today. Well, I really, really, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with me about all this stuff. And I feel like we could talk for days and days about this stuff. And I would love to talk with you more down the line and um, obviously keep in touch as things open up and progress. And, um, but I just really wanted to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for taking your time today.
1: Yeah, likewise. Thanks for such a beautiful sculpted conversation. It's a really fun (laughs) format to sort of make sense out of all this stuff in conversation. So I love a good conversation. Thanks for your research and your thoughtful questions and and some bird song from one end of Georgia to the other.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care.
1: Yeah, you too.
2: pretty
0: bird and she as she,
2: flies. she
0: if you'd like to dig into more on rising appalachia in their song catalog you'll find links in the description and you can follow leah at leah song music on instagram as well as at rising appalachia special thanks to the community on patreon for making this possible as a small independent program support is crucial to continue on Visit patreon.com slash americansongcatcher and join for as little as $3 a month. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher.